Hello. This week, we're introducing the three new series starting on the LRB's Close Readings podcast next year. Yesterday, you heard from Colin Burrow and Claire Bucknell about their series on satire. Today, Adam Schatz introduces his series, Human Conditions, looking at some of the revolutionary thought of the 20th century. Hi, I'm Adam Schatz, and for my close reading series called Human Conditions, I'll be joined by, in turn, Judith Butler, Pankaj Mishra, and Bren Hayes Edwards. We'll be looking at some of the most revolutionary ideas of the past hundred years or so, which will give us an insight not only into the inner life of the 20th century, but which are continuing to shape the world that we live in now. My guest for the first four episodes will be the acclaimed philosopher Judith Butler, and the texts that Judith has chosen for this series are Jean-Paul Sartre's Anti-Semite and Jew, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks, and Hannah Arendt's The Human Condition. And I asked Judith about those choices. So Anti-Semite and Jew gives us a way of thinking about what it means when the terms that name who we are are given to us by others who seek to demean us or eliminate us. Very often we think about the social categories in which we name ourselves or explain ourselves as ones that we would like to be able to devise. But in fact, they come to us with all kinds of histories. So how is it that a Jew comes to affirm being a Jew when the only way the Jew has been referred to is in an anti-Semitic way? Or how is it a woman comes to define herself when to be a woman seems to be set in a subordinate position? That was Simone de Beauvoir's question. Fanon talked about uh, waiting in the theater for the picture of the black man to come, and he would be addressed by this picture. He would be defined by it suddenly and felt himself becoming trapped or uh, objectified by that, uh, what's called an, an interpolation, that, that mode of address that is also deeply defining. What kinds of freedom do we have to remake ourselves or to struggle with historical categories that communicate difficult, if not demeaning or paralyzing legacies? And, you know, Hannah Arendt, I think, is quite interesting because she has, a, without being an existentialist, or without being as affected by the existentialist tradition as Sartre, Beauvoir, and Fanon, she does think about uh, self-creation as creation with others. In other words, she has a, an idea of what it is to act that allows us to be at once historically formed, but also forming our world substantially in a new way. Her way of handling that is, I think, Different from existentialism, it recalls some aspects of classical Greek and Roman life, but it also allows us to think about language and action and their interaction in some new and politically substantial ways, maybe offering a kind of politics um, that Sartre and Beauvoir could not in the same way. And her opposition to Fanon or her misreading of Fanon is also interesting because it points up the limits of what an Arendtian position can be. My guest for the next four episodes will be Pankaj Mishra, a novelist, essayist, and frequent contributor to the London Review of Books, as well as a leading thinker on the colonial and post-colonial world. He has chosen V.S. Naipaul's novel, A House for Mr. Biswas, 
Ashish Nandi's essay, The Intimate Enemy, Doris Lessing's novel, The Golden Notebook, and Nadezhda Mandelstam's Hope Against Hope. I asked Pankaj if there were thematic threads that link these texts. Definitely thematic threads that link these uh, books together, but in a couple of cases also books that are, in a way, critiques of each other. So let me let me start with uh, B.S. Naipaul's House for Mr. Biswas. Um, I mean, we recognize Naipaul as the preeminent writer of the post-colonial world. Uh, and this is, you know, a man who in a way perfectly represented and embodied in his work a search for modernity, the sort of colonial or post-colonial search for, for modernity. And in this novel, House to Mr. Biswas, it's an early novel of his, but it's perhaps the most powerful statement of that quest. You know, the description of a life of a man, uh, the character is based on his father. It's a very autobiographical narrative. It's about his father who spends uh, much of his short life looking for a house of his own. And from this simple story, he you know derives a very broad intellectual landscape in which you can see a, a colonial society, its limitations, its very desperate strivings for stability, for a degree of you know economic security, and you know most importantly for some kind of a pathway into the modern world. And of course, you know, then he goes on to write various books on the same theme, Ben in the River, probably the most striking of his later writings, where he describes the search for modernity in the context of a post-colonial nation and describes the tragedies and the paradoxes and the absurdities that, that attend that, that particular quest. So I chose uh, this book because it, it really does describe a particular intellectual and political journey in the second half of the 20th century. The reason why I chose Ashish Nandi's The Intimate Enemy is because it actually offers a critique of the kind of unreflective Enlightenment rationalism that Naipaul's work embodies. In that, Nandi is very much a critic of the secular ideologies of development, of modernization, and that is his particular contribution, one, one reason why The Intimate Enemy is such a striking book. I mean, it, it's published in 1983, around the same time that, you know, some of the canonical texts of post-colonialism are published, and yet it's very different from all of them. It sort of essentially resurrects people like Gandhi and Tagore as critical resources, and people previously hadn't really thought of them as serious thinkers, and kind of breaks with the whole Marxist tradition that was dominant in post-colonial countries. It breaks with, obviously, the sort of right-wing uh, Hindu nationalism or religious nationalist traditions in so many different countries. So this is a very, it's a very unique work, uh, and, and I think, you know, absolutely crucial to the intellectual formation of many important writers, and, you know, obviously sets up a critical tradition of its own uh, from its publication onwards. Golden Notebook, Doris Lessing, I mean, again, I think the richness of the themes that that book invokes and covers um, is quite extraordinary, you know, from feminism to the kind of post-colonial attraction to Marxism, expatriation, which became a big theme from the 1950s onwards, 
racial relations between uh, whites and black people in, in Africa and indeed in, in the heart of the imperial metropolis. So it's really is a, it's an extraordinary mid-century novel, extremely intellectual, formally very daring. Uh, and, you know, it's seen as a kind of enabling novel by a whole lot of uh, writers, not just feminist writers, but also many, many writers engaging with politics in their fiction. The fourth uh, choice, which is uh, Hope Against Hope by Nadezda Mandelstam, again, I mean, you know, it's seen as a as a work by a dissident Soviet writer, primarily about her husband, who was uh, persecuted by Stalin's regime and eventually killed by it. But I think actually it describes a much larger intellectual milieu through, of course, the stories of, of these two people, Nadezda and, and her husband. It describes the experience of living and working and writing and creating art in authoritarian states, which I don't think enough people realize in Western Europe and United States has been really the experience for a vast majority of writers in the 20th century. Most, most writers have not worked in uh, stable, powerful democracies. And I think we perhaps haven't really paid enough attention to, to this aspect. And again, it's become incredibly pressing, that experience for writers in Russia today, in China, in India, and many, many other countries uh, around the world, not to mention the Middle East. And I think the book is, is an extraordinarily complex account of just how those pressures work on writers. And those pressures don't always emanate from a repressive state, but also sometimes from what we know as civil society. I'm just struck by the fact that you've chosen four books that are um, in a reflective or contemplative mode and are imbued with with a sense of psychology. These give us the 20th century as lived intimately. Absolutely. I mean, I think if one wants to understand the inner life of the 20th century— then it's texts like these one has to go through. It's not, you know, books of history. It's not books of sociology. Because, I mean, two of these are works of fiction, which allow us to penetrate, obviously, much more deeply than works of nonfiction into the human psyche. But Intimate Enemy is a book by a social psychologist. And so for him, uh, human emotions are really a very, very important tool for understanding modern history. And again, I think the emotions of fear and terror and insecurity, which Nadezda Mandelstam is basically describing and dealing with page after page. Again, I mean, I think uh, these psychological currents, these psychological fears are very much to the fore in that particular narrative. My guest for the final four episodes in the series will be Brent Hayes Edwards, a professor at Columbia University who has written extensively on African-American literature, theories of the African diaspora, black radical historiography, cultural politics, jazz, and much more. For his episodes, he's chosen W.E.B. Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk, Aimé Césaire's Discourse on Colonialism, Amiri Baraka's Black Music, and Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider. And here he is explaining his choices. 
I tried to choose four works that were concerned in different ways with the meaning of blackness in the modern world. And they're also concerned in different ways with artistic expression in the African diaspora. And I wanted to think about that from different perspectives across the course of the 20th century. I would even go so far as to say that they're not usually put in this category, but they all, for me, could be described as experimental works in different ways. They're works of criticism that, in their form, argue that criticism cannot proceed as usual. If we're trying to change the world, if we're trying to think differently about the key questions of the 20th century, we have to write differently. We have to practice criticism differently. So they're heteroclit in different ways. And that, that was part of what I was attracted to, is a kind of innovation or a kind of uh, searching that's embedded in their form. The other thing that, that strikes me about the four people you've chosen is that although you've selected four works of what might be called nonfiction, each of the people you've chosen was a practicing literary artist. Yes. Starting with Du Bois, The Souls of Black Folk is you could say, a book that ushers us into the modern era, that ushers us into the 20th century, that starts by proclaiming that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line, um, is the question of race and colonialism and injustice on a global scale. It makes that argument in a way that is definitive, to me, for 20th century thought across the board, and certainly for African-American thought in literature, in a way that resonates with not just criticism, uh, not just philosophy, but with black fiction. You find echoes in James Weldon Johnson or in Ralph Ellison or in Toni Morrison throughout the more than century that follows Du Bois in 1903. Along with its theoretical ambition, its kind of century-opening gambit, The Souls of Black Folks is provocative because it's an essay collection. It's a collection of sundry fragments that Du Bois had published, most of them in magazines and journals in the late 1890s and moving into the 20th century. They're different kinds of things. They're, there's history, there's memoir, there's biography, there's what you could call music theory, there's ethnography, and there's fiction. There's even a short story in The Souls of Black Folk. So Du Bois, to me, seems to be saying that to think blackness as we move into the 20th century as one of the key questions of modernity, we have to do it from different angles. We can't just do it one way. I can't just write a short story. I can't just give a historical intervention that, that frames it as a historical question. I have to come at it from many different points of view. And I like that experimentation, although he doesn't trumpet it. Du Bois doesn't make a big deal out of that quality. It's just embedded in the form of the book, where as a reader, you have to deal with uh, the heterogeneity of the stuff in the book. One thing is not like the other, and how do all these things add up? Why don't we, we talk a little bit about, just say a few words about Césaire and Discourse on Colonialism and why you, chose, uh, why you chose this book. Because you could have chosen, for example, the Notebook of Return to the Native Land, but you chose Discourse on Colonialism, which I think is interesting. We often think of Frantz Fanon's Wretched of the Earth as the key touchstone in terms of theories of anti-colonialism, but you could argue that Aimé Césaire's Discourse on Colonialism is actually the first great theoretical text arguing against imperialism in the 20th century. 
So it raises some interesting questions about how things travel, about how some of these crucial texts in the canon reach audiences in other languages. And sometimes there are delays, sometimes uh, there are odd jumps and fits and starts in the way things move from one language to another. Souls of Black Folk is about African-American identity. Du Bois pitches the color line as a global phenomenon. He is already in 1903 thinking about race and colonialism and the fate of what he tends to call the darker peoples of the world, what we might today call the global south. But to turn from Du Bois to Césaire frames that question from another issue, from another angle, because now we're not thinking from the Anglophone world, we're not thinking from the U.S., but we're thinking from the colonial world and the French-speaking world and the Caribbean, so another part of the African diaspora. And it seems important, even though the global ambition, the global reach is there in Du Bois, to come at that global question from a different side. Because Césaire is writing in 1950, right on the heels of World War II, he's thinking in a very direct way about the implications of that conflagration for the understanding of imperialism. And what he does, like Hannah Arendt, he connects the techniques of brutalization and dehumanization, what Césaire calls thingification, that we associate with fascism in Nazi Germany, to colonialism to the brutalities and violences of European colonialism in Africa and Asia. And he says that the modes of brutality that we think of as fascist, as things that emerged in World War II, were actually perfected, were actually elaborated and developed in the colonies first. Baraka's Black Music and Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider are also eclectic collections of different kinds of material, jazz journalism, liner notes, short essays, talks, articles from the 1960s and 70s. And so, again, in their form, they raise this question of what it means to think race in the 20th century as one of the key questions of the human condition. They do it in different ways, but I'm excited by uh, pairing them and thinking across from what Baraka's doing in the 1960s to what Lord is doing in the 1970s. Baraka's Black Music in the mid-60s, for me, was, I'd describe it as a Baedeker of the new thing. It's a book I used almost as a buying guide and went out and bought LP after LP. He gives you a kind of introductory curriculum of the cutting edge of Black Music in the 1960s. But the book is an argument, too, even though it's made up of these fragments of these various pieces he publishes in periodical form in the early 1960s, it's an argument for the politics of black music. Baraka, more than anyone else, argues that music is a mode of thought, that music is a mode of articulate thought. It's a perspective on the world, and for African Americans, really across the African diaspora, because he's thinking diasporically and globally as well, Music is actually the most articulate form of Black thought. It gives the clearest, the most precise understanding of the Black experience. Um, he also says that music is the most powerful expression of, it's the paradigm of a Black radical political perspective. That it's actually in music, not in literature, not in political philosophy. To me, the other key intervention of Baraka in Black music it's an argument for the avant-garde, 
for the importance of experimental black music as it's exploding out of the bebop era um, as the 1950s moves into the 1960s. But Baraka also says in a powerful and to me convincing way that we can't make generic separations among the genres of black music, that there's a through line, what Baraka calls a changing same, that connects the blues to R&B to the most out, the most experimental forms of avant-garde jazz. So he makes you hear Sun Ra and Cecil Taylor and James Brown as part of the same thing. The same politics, the same will to imagine the world otherwise is present in all these musics, whether they're so-called commercial or popular musics, whether they're dance musics, or whether they're musics that make you think, that make you sit down and reflect. I mean, it's interesting, uh, Brent, to go from Baraka to Lord, because Baraka at that time was, you know, he was a bit of a macho kind of writer. It was mostly about black masculinity. And here you've chosen someone who is this exemplar of... Um, Black queer writing, you know. Recent years, she's become an icon, you know, for a movement. The question of literature runs, for me, through the four, because Du Bois is a fiction writer, Césaire, Baraka, and Audre Lorde are all poets. And so part of what I want to think about is what kind of criticism does a creative writer write um, when that writer is thinking philosophically or thinking historically or thinking theoretically? Um, how does a writer like Césaire, how does a writer like Baraka, how does a writer like Lord turn to nonfiction? But pairing Baraka and Lord, or moving from Baraka to Lord in particular, is a provocation because Baraka is associated with the black arts movement in the 1960s and a radical form of black masculinity. And Lord is one of the great feminist and queer poets of the 1970s and 1980s. For some readers of the black arts movement and these black literary and political circles in that period, there's a real opposition between an Amiri Baraka and an Audre Lorde. But I think in this urge to experiment, in this urge to think otherwise, there are some points of commonality, there are some similarities, or there are at least some ways to think from one to the other. Audre Lorde's Sister Outsider is a collection of speeches and articles and essays, mostly from the 1970s, that to me is the key text in the Black feminist critique of the hypocrisies of second-generation feminism, that critiques the blinders and the biases in white feminist circles in that period. In that sense, it might seem like a local argument. It might seem like an argument within a particular cadre of American feminists. But Audre Lorde is also, as much as Du Bois, as much as Aimé Césaire, as much as Baraka, thinking globally, thinking across border. Audre Lorde is a writer who has crucial connections to literary circles and political circles in Germany, in the Caribbean. And I like that restlessness, that peripatetic element in Lord that's as much there in her work as it is in Baraka or Césaire and Du Bois. Baraka makes an argument for music as the paradigmatic mode of black art. Even though he's a writer, he says, actually, the musicians do it better than the writers. Audre Lorde makes an argument for art, too, in her essays and talks. In her piece, Poetry is Not a Luxury, to me, it's the most beautiful and the most poignant and the most devastating, the most uh, powerful argument for poetry as a mode with critical precision. 
poetry, writing poetry affords what she calls a quality of light, a way of seeing. It's not just giving rise to giving expression to your feelings. It's not just letting your emotions out. But poetry is a way of a mode of critique as precise and as political as anything else. She makes, for me, the definitive argument for poetry in that direction. The other thing I would say about Sister Outsider is that it, on a broad level and on a deep level, asks us to reconsider the way we think about difference, the way we think about the categories that separate us, whether that is in terms of race or sex, gender, uh, nationality, language. She says, why should difference be oppositional? Why should difference be opposition? Why should it be uh, something that we either have to accommodate or push out? Why can't we think of difference as a fund of possibility, as something that catalyzes, that sparks actually creative potential, that sparks the way we come together, the way we collaborate? And to me, Sister Outsider is a key text because it asks us to rethink difference across all these frontiers. You'll be able to listen to the full series of Human Conditions and all the other close reading series, new and old, as part of the LRB Close Readings podcast subscription, available through Apple Podcasts and other podcast apps. Or, if you'd like to receive all the books discussed in the series and have access to online seminars with Adam and his guests, you can sign up to Close Readings Plus, which will go on sale from Wednesday the 22nd of November. Find details for both ways of subscribing in the description.